All right, good morning and welcome back. It's Friday, July 24th, and this is the Weekend Debrief on FingerLakes1.com. I'm Josh Gersoff, joined as always by Ted Baker. He's the host of Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva and Auburn. Ted, we're back. We're here. Great to be back. It's been a few weeks. I've missed it. It has been a few weeks, and a lot has happened, or maybe in some ways a lot hasn't happened. Um, I I would have thought, since the last time we talked, that we would have had a resolution to what's happening in the whole sports world. But there is so much fragmentation happening right now that it's really hard to get a sense of what is or isn't going to be happening uh, this fall. So I'm curious, you're the sports mind here. Uh, What are you thinking in terms of outcomes of some of the different, uh, whether it be collegiate and professional leagues that we're seeing, take steps forward in one way or another? I think there's still a lot of discussion about fall sports in 2020. I think the discussion ought to be whether there'll be fall sports in 2021, and I mean that seriously. It's You can only swim against the tide for so long. The sentiment, both here in New York and across the country, is still, well, for the most part, across the rest of the country right now, it's that things are getting worse. I, I mean, here we are in upstate New York, where we really have flattened the curve, and we're now among the least infected areas in the whole country but you know across the country now we've got this this upturn so we've seen uh division three fall sports are pretty much gone not completely the liberty league has announced no so hobart cuca college uh none of those schools are going to be playing um i think that division one if uh, division one college football i think will at least try to start but then the question becomes and I've said this the same thing with Major League Baseball opened last night Uh, NBA and hockey are supposed to but how long can they go how many COVID tests is it going to take before this team has to sideline and then this team has to sideline I'm just I'd love to be optimistic but I don't think we're going to see anything really locally to speak of in the fall uh, maybe SU, mm-hmm. and and I don't know that we will in the spring. I mean, all, all these people talking about Hobart playing spring football. High schools haven't said yet, but again, under this current uh, sentiment across New York and across the country, can you see anybody saying, yep, we're going to play football in September? My curiosity is how effectively – whether it's a college, whether it's a professional league, whether whatever it is, how they're going to deal with positive cases when they do happen. Because it's not like you can say they aren't going to happen. They are going to happen. And obviously the headline last night out of the Nationals game was that Soto tested positive, but they didn't get the results until basically yesterday morning, it sounded like, even though the test was, was done a couple days ago. He had contact with people in between. They said there wasn't a lot of risk to the players on the team, but you don't, I, I guess, you can't know for sure. Um, you've got questions looming around sort of efficacy of, of testing and is does it work, does it not work. Um, you know, I was listening coming in this morning on the drive and around, it seems, 37% of tests, uh, the health officials and health experts are saying uh, yield a, an incorrect result, um, which doesn't really give, at least doesn't really give me a ton of confidence in any of these leagues or colleges or high schools being able to effectively manage basic operation, much less being able to handle like a playing of a league or playing of, of sports, right? Like I'm not really sure what the step is there or how long, because the, the one question that keeps coming to me or keeps popping up in my head is, how long does baseball last? It's not a matter of, you know, what does what do the numbers look like at the end of the season or how do you deal with a team that is mostly COVID positive and has to go on a, a week or two-week hiatus. But can these leagues or could any of these colleges or, or college leagues be able to get through an entire season? No. They're going to try. And, I mean, that that's where all these contradictions come in, like you say. If, if we're in some other walk of life, uh, I mean, there was a positive COVID test right around the corner from here the other day uh, that got reported and, and, and uh, became a contentious topic like they all do. 
in that case, you do contact tracing. Okay, who is this person with? And the sports leagues sort of seem to be saying, well, we don't really need to do that, and we don't. How can they not? And and again, a positive test or or even a, a negative test is a one day snapshot. Right. If I test negative today, it doesn't mean that I won't get it tomorrow. And like you said, there's also the the increasing lag in the time from test to result. You know, I mean, there was a, a case the other day, and I don't even remember which one this was, where the infection took place on July 11th, and they were saying, well, if you were at this place on the 11th, and this was on the 22nd. Yeah. I, I mean, by, by 11 days, I could already have had it, been ill, recovered, and gone on with my life. So I don't, with the sentiment being what it is in the country right now, I don't see how these three professional leagues make it to the end of these seasons. That That's my prediction is MLB, NBA, NHL will not be able to finish. Does the NFL even start? I think they'll try because the NFL, it's big money. Uh, the NFL has political clout. I think they'll at least start. I, mm-hmm. But but again, I just think you're going to wind up with, at a certain point, how do you justify continuing when you have 17 players on this team are positive? You know, what happens if... Uh, you know, Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes and a couple other big-name quarterbacks all can't play one week. I mean, at what point is it not even the NFL anymore? Yeah, and, and I'm curious, uh, as you get closer, and we haven't seen a ton of it yet, but it still makes me curious to wonder how many, um, it, when you start to see the, the, I don't want to call it a flood of positive cases, but if you start to see more positive cases in in these leagues, do your high-profile players, <coughs> excuse me, high-profile players start to say, eh, maybe not for me. Maybe I'll just take this short and abbreviated, not quite normal season off, even though it will mean I lose, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars. Well, we've seen some of that. We've seen some players in all these leagues already say they don't want to do it, but I think that's a distinct possibility. I mean, if you're if you're any kind of a veteran player in these leagues and you manage your money decently at all, you can probably survive a year off, maybe even a couple of years off. The problem is, you know, the guys that are up and coming, mm-hmm. making the minimum, your minimum guys don't have that luxury. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even though, you know, let's face it, Major League Baseball minimums 350000 But if that's taken away from you, how long can you survive? Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the whole enforcement of social distancing, masking, and, and now new bar and restaurant mandates um, that we obviously chatted a little, about, a little bit about before we came on here. Um, obviously, the rules have completely changed for bars and restaurants with what is or isn't food, and there's been some confusion over the last five to seven days about what is or isn't food, chips, salsa, popcorn, peanuts, um, allegedly not considered food items, but at the same time, we haven't seen any kind of meaningful enforcement uh, start to take shape. It seemed more like a threat than anything else, but the SLA, the Liquor Authority, has issued really pretty stern guidance in terms of what they're saying is or isn't uh, passable as a food item. Um, The governor obviously made some headlines yesterday talking about chicken wings, saying chicken wings are not a passable food item. Um, Empire State Development, ESD, uh, came out and said, whoa, wait a second, chicken wings, they are in fact a food, Mr. Governor. Um, So they are a food now, again, to everyone's, no one's surprise. Who am I kidding? Um, Interesting, my my view of all this, and obviously before the last seven days, everyone was talking about enforcement of masking. And I've talked to enough county officials from around the region who have said that they're getting tons of complaints. They're getting almost like an endless amount of complaints. It's a constant stream um, about businesses not enforcing masking mandate, people just not wearing a mask. Um, We've heard about some different events that have featured folks who are choosing to not wear a mask, whether they're outdoors or indoors, they're gathering, and some people find that um, concerning. It's fascinating to me because... I have continued to go back to this core philosophy. Whenever we're talking about all of these uh, mandates that keep popping up new ones by the day, these health departments 
have not had the staff to appropriately, in a lot of cases, appropriately deal with what could have happened in the pandemic. So if we saw a real surge in cases, if we saw a real, you know, a real boom in, in positives, if we, as, a, as any county, don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to appropriately deal with, you know, a moderate level pandemic in the local community, how are they supposed to also be enforcing rules that are changing literally by the hour or interpretations that are changing by the hour? Because that seems to be the other thing that I'm hearing is that they're these public health officials, legislators, these uh, some folks in law enforcement, I assume as well, are left trying to interpret executive orders that carry the weight of law and that have real fines attached to them, but don't really have clear, concise guidance on how, on when, on what should happen up till. And it seems like it's creating more confusion for folks who are running businesses than anything else. Well, to go back to square one on this question, back to last Thursday when the governor unleashed his bar food edict and we had the Cuomo chips and people got very creative in winery tasting rooms and microbreweries. I think when we look back at this week, I think this was the week where Andrew Cuomo jumped the shark. Um, I don't use this word lightly, but Andrew Cuomo is a liar. He came out and said earlier this week, I never said the bars could open. I never said the tasting rooms could open. Well, that was certainly implied. If it wasn't explicit, it was implicit. He's on TV every single day. Three weeks to four weeks go by, and then he says, I never said you could do this. I mean, that's absurd. And now we have the what's food, what isn't. It's purely punitive. It has nothing to do with public health. And also, I don't think he really has any intention of enforcing this. What it was was a shot against the bow, because we've all seen the pictures of largely young people, not, and not even so much in New York as across the country, gathering in huge crowds on beaches in Texas and Florida and places like that. I think this was the governor's way of saying, hey, knock it off. You know, somebody posted on Twitter something about, uh, you know, I don't want to have to turn this car around, like Dad would always say. So it's, it, but but so to, for what you say about county health departments, there really are no counties in New York at this point. There's Andrew Cuomo. The legislature is passing some bills here and there, and I give Senator Pam Helming credit. She tried to put an amendment in a bill calling for a curtailing of these executive powers, and the, the amendment was shot down. So it, it, I, I've been saying all throughout this for months now, it isn't supposed to make sense. Stop looking for ways that it makes sense and recognize it for what it is. It's the naked exercise of power by one man. Watch what I can do. I mean, there was, there's no connection whatsoever between social distancing crowding, and whether or not you have food. I mean, it doesn't matter my having potato chips with my beer at the local microbrewery doesn't make anybody any safer. So it, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I've been asking myself all throughout this, will there come a point where he pushes too far and there'll be widespread pushback from the people? Uh, maybe we've arrived at that point now. We'll see. Well, and it's interesting because I, I ask myself what that would even look like, and I don't think it looks like what people are, are thinking in their brains when they hear that because I hear that from time to time when I'm listening to the radio or when I'm watching TV, and it's, it's, you know, it's the idea that there's going to be these sort of you know, riots on the street over you know, the local bar not being able to operate as they, as they desire. I, to me, that, more, that will more look like a casual disregard of the guidance of the rules and whatever the outcome of that may may be you don't you don't know because we don't know what's going to happen yeah i think that's right my my thought process on this is like first of all the guidance itself didn't really seem to be warranted or make sense in most of new york maybe there's an issue downstate that's been pretty well documented at this point that there is an issue downstate and in certain parts around downstate 
uh, with non-compliance. But if you go, if you talk to business owners, if you talk to restaurant and bar owners around here in the Finger Lakes and Central New York, um, in the Southern Tier, they aren't that busy. They, they're no. seeing, you know, maybe they're at like thirty or forty percent of their normal, what would be normal business. And they're working night and day. They're doing everything they can. To comply. I mean, uh, everybody knows right. I'm a big craft beverage aficionado. I have places I go to pretty much every week. And, and I've talked to those people. And they say, okay, yeah. we're going to, you know, they're putting, when, when outdoor seating areas became okay, all right, we've got our tables, they're 10, 20 feet apart. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, they're, they're, everyone's making a good faith effort. That's what makes kind of this a slap in the face, is that almost everybody is making a good faith effort. And, and especially here... In New York, we flattened the curve. Well, okay, so here's the here's the second point I was getting to is like, is this latest push from Governor Cuomo an effort to save face among a crowd that feels like things have been loosened too much? Because that's what I keep I keep wondering if in the in the back of his mind, especially given that we aren't seeing real hard enforcement of these new the new guidance. I'm kind of curious, like, is this just because that crowd hasn't gone away? And while it is small, it is a small portion of, you know, the community at large, it's still there. And I think it's more sizable than people realize. There are a number of folks who still believe that they just shouldn't be going out anywhere. They go to the grocery store, they stay home 99% of the time, and that's it. And I think, you know, the data, if we're going to say data bears it out, I would say data bears this out very well, seeing as how restaurants and bars are significantly less busy than they ordinarily would be. So is this announcement, we'll call it an announcement last week, was this an effort to sort of extend an olive branch to those folks who feel like Governor Cuomo has gone too far the other way and he's become too lax? I don't think it is. I think it's a reminder of who's in charge around here. It's that simple. It's if the governor begins, the, the more he loosens things up, the more he loses his grip on power. Let's you know. Let's say we, we here in New York, we're down to the number of daily COVID deaths in the entire state is less than the number of car crash deaths. Let's say we go three weeks without a death, new cases slow to a trickle, positive tests are half of one percent. At some point, he's going to have to step down off the throne because there's no need for it anymore. So I think that's it's that simple. It's a reminder. That's why there's no real enforcement tied to it. He really doesn't want to enforce it. He just wants to remind you that he can. It's a shot across the bar to these crowds that if you keep doing this, I can make it so you can't. And, of course, we now see that uh, the U.S. Senate is... is talking relief package number two probably won't be as big or extreme as uh, the CARES Act was, but it does look like another round of stimulus checks are going to be going out and going out to basically everybody who makes less than $75,000 a year again. Um, Also talking about a a renewed boost of, of unemployment benefits, not to the tune of $600 like we saw in round one, but to the tune of $200 most likely this time around. Curious, um, what do we make of of that move, and what do you make of the continued debate around um, return to work and how people make a living right now? Because it seems, from my perspective, um, especially coming off the conversation we just had, a lot of these folks who worked in the service industry, they may have a job to go back to, but that job is going to yield a fraction of what it yielded before. So it seems like there will need to be some sort of intervention. And I know uh, Senate Republicans have talked about uh, possibly including a, a return to work stipend that would be semi-regular over a, some period of time. Um, I'm I'm curious though, how does that? How does all of that play in your mind compared to what we're we're seeing and? sort of reality of the economic situation. Well, I, I think it was a mistake, and I don't understand the rationale in the first package of $600 a week extra. That's $30,000 a year. A lot of people don't make $30,000 a year. Unemployment is supposed to be kind of a Band-Aid and kind of a, a help through the tough time. It's not supposed to boost your income. I mean, we saw a lot of people 
get a sudden doubling of their income when they lost their jobs. And so when businesses began to come back, they said, uh, you want to come back to work? And people said, no, I'm good. I'm making 30000 And that's 30000 plus the usual state unemployment payment. So you had people that were making $40,000 a year to do nothing. I don't understand the rationale behind that. But the problem is once you start with that, anything less than that seems like you're being unkind and ungenerous. I mean, that's the way a lot of people, especially in the left, are framing it is, oh my God, we're going to lose our $600 a week. Well, that's not sustainable. So it's we keep throwing these band-aids at the problem and and you and I over the months we always talk about long term what's the economy going to look like in 1 and 2 and 5 years what how do we, we we can't keep having stimulus forever there's no free money at some point we have to have some semblance of the economy that we had in February of 2020 but do those, I think the question that's being wrestled with most here is, do those benefits need to be enhanced as they are for the time being to keep some semblance of economic activity going? Because I was, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and they were talking about some of the sectors that have actually seen steady or maybe slightly increased spending since the pandemic started because of the CARES Act bonus or presumed because of the CARES Act bonuses that people were getting. And I sort of balance that with, you know, I think the number was thrown up so high initially because of how low unemployment is in a lot of states. I mean, New York, you can't use New York State as one of the, as sort of the your baseline, right? If you're going to have this conversation, you can't say that, you know, a state that is not only one of the most expensive to live, but one of the most expensive to just generally do business in, of course, they're also going to have the highest natural benefit as well but you look at i just pulled up the list and you look at some of the other uh, some of the other states mississippi arizona louisiana alabama florida they all have benefits of 275 dollars a week or less i mean you aren't living off of that you aren't sustaining yourself especially if the government is telling you you're not allowed to go to work or you shouldn't go to work and my you know i i feel like there's a lot of pushback to socializing the way the economy works, but I think in the short term, you, you, you don't really have much of a choice, especially if economic output in the service industry, which is what we've become way too reliant on as an economy overall, is going to stumble and trip and barely keep itself crawling along. I mean, you know, we've started to sit down with some restaurants and do some interesting profiles on how they've approached this whole thing. And, you know, they're, they're trying, they're bringing back uh, wait staff in waves in shifts to try and like so they don't lose too much of their their benefits or they they're able to keep some of their benefits so that they're they don't just take a gigantic pay cut not only from what they're making on unemployment but from what they were making before the pandemic i i I can't see how any solution to this problem which isn't going away for the next year this is something we're gonna have to live with for another 365 days minimum i don't see a scenario where the federal government can avoid stepping in and providing basically being the stopgap and providing the the middle ground funding to make sure that people can sustain themselves in the process. Well, I think as long as we're in the grip of COVID, that issue is going to be less contentious. But afterwards, at some future time, if we ever get there, I mean, you and I had this conversation several months ago and this was before we even knew, knew what COVID was, that we will reach a point in our economy where there aren't enough jobs for everybody who wants one. And we're going to reach that a lot sooner now. I mean, even if COVID ends, if every last case of COVID is eradicated from the face of the earth by New Year's Day 2021, the economic ripples are going to go on for years. And there are going to be people who simply can't get jobs. And that's where we begin to have that universal guaranteed income debate. And it's like I say, we, we could have that debate now because it's special times, but you, you know how the left-right split is going to be on that. I mean, the political right in this country, and for legitimate reasons, obviously, doesn't want, you know, nobody wants to pay people not to work. But what else are we going to do? If we have an economy, if we have 330 million people, I don't know what the working population is, let's say it's 200 million workers and there's 150 million jobs, 
what are we going to do with those other 50 million people? We've got to do something, but I don't know how we agree on what that is. And, it, and it's interesting, too, because you're going to hear the same old sorry ideas about what they can do. Well, you could have a gigantic infrastructure spending and you could, you know, put people back to work on the roads and all this. And it's like, sure, you could, but that's well, literally just temporary. Well, <laughs> yeah, but, you know. but that that worked in the 1930s. I mean, the WPA, that's what you're talking about. They, they put people to work building things and sweeping the streets and paving the streets. The idea was that if we do those things, that the, eventually the economy will grow on its own to the point where we can have full employment. I don't know that the economy is going to grow on its own because, again, even if we get through this, even if COVID disappears New Year's Day 2021, isn't there going to be in the back of our minds for the next 10 or 20 years that it could come back or something else like it could come back? I mean, this is going to... It's going to affect the way business people think. If I'm a business person and you know I'm building a chain of stores, how fast do I want to expand that chain now? Do I want to hold back and go, I think I'll just wait and see what conditions look like? I mean, I think people are going to be very slow to expand, and so I, I, I don't see, you know, the, the idea is always that, oh, the economy always bounces back. I don't know if it will this time. So my curiosity is whenever we get into these, and I don't mean you and I, but whenever I start to hear these debates happen, I, I can't help but wonder, like, at what point does do all the Band-Aids and the unintended costs of pandemic, economic downturn, whatever it might be, out not outweigh or do outweigh the cost of just a universal basic income or something that is sustained, yes, and maybe you say it's a two- or three-year trial or something to that effect, or it's a very small amount to start with. But for, you know, and, and I say this as, as one of the people who, you know, I'm grateful for it, but, like, my life has not been Im impacted by this, you know, financially speaking. And it's like there aren't that many people who can say that, but those of us who haven't are the ones who should be saying, you got to do something for the people who are, are just barely scraping by or aren't scraping by or are going to be, you know, either homeless or whatever the case may be in three or four months because of, you know, a spike in evictions, because of unpaid rent or, you know, not prolonged joblessness. You know, these, yes, it's going to cost money, but that's what happens when you don't prepare for a pandemic for 30 years and you strip down the healthcare system until there's just nothing left of it and it can't handle, you know, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 people getting sick at once. This is we've cre we've we've made our bed. We have to lie in it now. And we just need to bite the bullet and spend the money now so that we have something to fix 2 3 2 3 4 years down the line. At least that's the way I view it at this point. Yeah, and I mean, I'm in the same boat. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine because I have not been hurt terribly financially. Um, I will be beginning this fall if there's no sports, but not not in a way that's unsurvivable. I mean, I'm not rich, I, but I, you know, our family will be able to get by. I, so I don't know what it's like for the people who are now three months behind on their $850 a month rent and are sitting there hoping they get the next stimulus check so they can afford to catch up and hoping they don't get evicted and hoping the laws change. I mean, it's, it's I, I, we said this in one of our recent visits, this whole COVID outbreak has laid bare a lot of problems with our society. And, and like you said, a lot of delayed decisions that we haven't made. Back before we were talking about COVID, we talked a lot in these conversations about the future of America, what the economy is going to look like, what health care is going to look like, what local and county government is going to look like, uh, what education is going to look like, and we're going to have to answer all these questions sooner than later. So we talked about it briefly earlier, but I, I want to get into it a little more specifically um, with, re with relation to the, or the academic side of uh, schools. Do they reopen? Obviously, we talked a little bit about on your show this morning um, what that might look like, how that might work. 
What have you been hearing uh, in your conversation with various administrators and, and parents and folks like that? Well, it sounds like the one thing that is completely off the table is normal reopening. We're not going to see full classrooms. It, it looks like the the option most people are heading towards now is some in-person attendance combined with some online. So you go two days a week, you learn remotely three, or, you know, two days, Wednesday we clean the school, and then two days. I, I mean, that seems to be the, the best compromise anyone's able to come up with. And, and again, even if we said, even if the school districts all around here, if their plans were, we're going to open up fully, if they did that, all indications are as many as 30% of parents wouldn't send their kids to school anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, to me, the, the interesting tidbit is that as I talk to parents and as I talk to administrators and I talk to teachers, retired and current, it, I hear the same things. But then I talk, to, I talk to a couple kids. I talk to some students and high school students. And it's interesting, like the experience they had in the spring with remote learning, with distance learning was not good. Good, we're talking about good students. I'm not talking about the students that are right. on the fringe that are you know, struggling to get by, the students that, that I was you know, 10 years ago. Um, but truth be told, if those students are having this much trouble with distance learning and the students that aren't the 90 to 95 GPA carriers are going to have even more trouble. You're heading toward a, res, a, a real disaster in terms of student outcomes, which is that phrase that I love to hear whenever I talk to a, a, a teacher or an administrator, because they always talk about student outcomes. And I don't see a scenario right now where student outcomes are good or usable in our existing academic K through 12 system. No. And, and what I, a lot of the talk I'm hearing across the country is that this is going to even more segregate the difference between the haves and the have-nots. The well-to-do are going to be able to send their kids to private tutors or these micro-schools they're talking about, and the less well-to-do are going to be stuck, especially in the rural parts of upstate New York, where they might not even have high-speed internet. I mean, try doing a video lesson. Remember what it was like watching videos in the dial-up days? It's still those days for a significant number of people in the area of this podcast. Yeah. And to that end, I would even take that a step further and say, like, you know, what happens when one of the haves uh, fails a class and the parents feel that it was because they were learning remotely and they decide to take the school district to court? Are, are school districts prepared to deal with what might come out of continuing this distance learning, giving some people access, other people not access, trying to create a, an equitable scenario? Because it seems like the state's guidance does include some uh, equ steps toward equity or creating equity. How do you justify what is appropriate and is appropriate? Like, where do you draw the line? What students are in as far as getting more attention and what students are left out. It just doesn't seem like there is a scenario. And I don't, I'm not saying that the answer is keep kids home for a whole nother year. I'm just saying that I, I think, you know, in some ways to put the college term on it, everything that happens this year and probably next year has to be put on a curve. And you just have to, whatever the outcome is, the outcome is and deal with all the, the shortcomings that are clearly going to be left over afterward, catching students up, bringing students up to up to present. Deal with that afterward, because you're you're not going to be able to create equity in the middle of a pandemic where society has already been exposed in upteen different ways as being the least equitable thing you could possibly imagine. The educators are caught in the middle. I mean, you've got we know it's how not a shot at that. We know how no, absolutely not. I, I think most people know that by now. And and the problem is again, any kind of state guidance, we can get guidance a week before school starts. That doesn't mean that Andrew Cuomo won't go on TV 
the Friday before Labor Day and throw a complete curveball and change everything up. I, I mean, hopefully we'll get better at the distance learning model, having more time to, to employ it. But, I mean, at what cost? At what happens when we have an entire generation? I mean, we already make fun of kids today that all they do is sit there and, and thumb their devices and, you know, they text each other in the other room. How much worse is that going to get when there's just no socialization at all? I, I mean, I asked the question the other day, you know, you mentioned masks earlier. Wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask. Well, if they're safe, if masks protect us, then why can't we open the classrooms fully? I, I put that on Facebook the other day, and, and nobody really had an answer. It, it's, it, I mean, even the, I think it's the CDC that is stressing that need for socialization, that need for one-on-one -on -one with the teacher. If you're struggling, you need to be able to go up to the teacher and say, I don't get this chapter. Please explain this calculus or algebra to me again. And I don't know how we do that on Zoom or remotely. Now, I mean, at the college level, uh, some colleges have been doing it with pretty good success. FLCC does it a lot, and they do it well. But I don't know if that's going to work with a fifth grader from a poorer home where Internet might be sketchy and mom and dad both have to work and they're left at home. Are they even going to do the lesson? Yeah, and I think... You know, part of the issue here is that whenever this conversation comes up, you start to we all start to blend the socialization aspects of school or the benefits, as well as just the sort of academic goal that that's had there. And it's interesting because I think if there's anything that kids today are really ready for and and good to handle, more so I think than a lot of adults. It's the lack of direct face-to-face -face socialization, honestly. I, I think, especially if you're looking at teens and sort of those that are being that are developing right now, they've they've been exposed to technology their entire lives. They've most likely had some piece of technology placed in their hand within the first few years of their their life. Whether you're talking about one of these little leapfrog kind of you know toys that educate, whatever the right. case may be. Um, I think kids are particularly good at building community online and creating something that's meshable and functional to serve the purposes of what like traditional socialization look like in high schools and middle schools and elementary schools 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, maybe maybe there's a generational divide where the older folks, you know, maybe we're putting more value on that face-to-face -face contact than we need to. I mean, when, you know, well, I'm older than you are, but, I mean, for me, applying for a job was always sending a paper resume yeah. and a tape for radio in the mail and then being called to a face-to-face -face interview. I, I mean, now a lot of people get hired without ever setting foot in the workplace they're going to work in or actually physically meeting the person who's hiring them. They, they apply online. You know, maybe they have a Zoom interview mm -hmm. where they're not wearing pants, and they get hired. But that, to me, that's the one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, and I think you can't lose sight of that, is like what you're describing is that one-on-one -on -one help when needed right. still exists. And I don't know if this means like, you know, maybe school, maybe K through 12 school, if it's going to be this hybrid model or mostly distance learning model for certain age groups has to also include sort of the office hours that, you know, college campuses have for professors carry office hours where you can go and get that one-on-one -on -one help in an actual one-on-one -on -one environment. Maybe the outcomes become better in that scenario. Um, but still, I think you have so many ancillary social issues that you have to deal with transportation you have to deal with you know the the housing issues you have to deal with the, the family dynamic you have to deal with the economic stuff the broadband access at home which is obviously actually going to be the next thing we talk about um, it just becomes very challenging I think to manage all of those things for a school district because the school district is having to manage all of these things and negotiate for them all in about 30 Eight days. Well, and when you talk about outcomes, I, I think you're just going to see, I think higher income families' kids are going to do better. Mm -hmm. They're going to have better access to technology. 
They're going to have parents more likely to be able to afford extra tutoring or that kind of thing if they need it. So I, I think that's going to be a big question is making sure, you know, to, to quote George W. Bush, that no child gets left behind. So uh, we've heard calls for additional spending in child care and to bolster child care. Uh, Senator Gillibrand uh, introduced a bill or supported a bill, I should say. I'm not sure who actually introduced it. Uh, $60 billion to help child care facilities uh, meet the various requirements that they're going to have to meet. Um, interesting, from my perspective, um, doesn't really seem like there's adequate child care. So this funding seems to miss the mark in a big way because it does, it won't help add to the the access issue. And it also seems to bypass the, the people who are most hurt by this whole thing, which are the individual parents who have to fork over thousands of dollars, potentially thousands of dollars a month for child care heading into this season if they want, or this uh, school year, if they want to continue this distance learning model or if it becomes necessary. Um, it, it's interesting. What, what are your thoughts on seeing that and is this just one of those pieces of legislation that is meant to make people think that something meaningful is happen, happening versus something actually meaningful happening? I think it's mostly that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of symbolism involved there. It's, it's interesting. One of the things that, that's happened during this whole COVID outbreak is the, the normal, the, the right and Republicans tend to not like social spending and they want to promote self-reliance, but I think even they have come to realize that, that you can't be very self-reliant when you don't have a job and you don't have any way to get one. I mean, it's, we've, you know, the, 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 the argument against social spending all these years has been we can't afford it. Well, now it seems like we really can if we put our minds to it. I don't know what the outcome's going to be down the line. I still think we're headed for either some pretty hefty tax hikes or inflation or both at some point in the future paying for all these things. I think I've, I've always been a believer. I, I think the best way to stimulate the economy and sectors of the economy is to put money directly in people's hands. You know, I would not give money to daycare centers. I would give it to people and let them spend it if they want to spend it on daycare, if they want to spend it on better internet. Uh, that That's what I'd like to see is more money. You know, a lot of these proposals, you know, the stimulus proposals now are talking about giving aid to businesses. I think the best way to aid businesses is to put more money in the pockets of consumers, and then they'll spend it at the businesses that they choose. Uh, so obviously, backing off of some of the things that we've already talked about, uh, lawmakers in New York State have sent a bill to Cuomo's desk for his signature, uh, but by signing it, he would be acknowledging that in 2015, his $500 million spend on broadband expansion didn't quite work. Uh, this piece of legislation that I'm referring to would be a study to act, it would be a study of access to uh, high-speed internet in all of New York and all of the places in New York. And it's interesting because, of course, we're in one of the more rural parts of the state, and that is one of the big targets of this, uh, of this bill. The idea is that when that expansion happened in 2015, which was largely fed through Spectrum, uh, the rules were effectively skirted in such a way that uh, the numbers were padded. So, you know, the, the state can turn around right now and say that 98 or 99% of the state has access to uh, broadband, but they're counting it in such a way that is not completely honest about real access to broadband. I, even in Seneca Falls here, I know of uh, roads that, you know, at one end, and you're talking about less than a quarter mile divide between them, um, at one end, they have access to Spectrum, and three houses down the road, they do not. And Spectrum tells them that it would cost twenty plus thousand dollars to have that service if they wanted at their property line, and that is not access to high speed broadband. And if these, and that's just one, you know, that's anecdotal evidence. I mean, 
countless different scenarios have played out across the region that we've seen play out across the region where access is not evenly dispersed around the community at all. Well, I think studies are where good ideas go to die. Uh, When you want to kill something, what do you do? You pass a study of it. I mean, we don't need to study broadband in New York. I guarantee you that Spectrum knows exactly who has broadband and who doesn't. And to the penny, they know what it would cost them to extend it. So I guess, you know, the answer is if we're going to give some of these companies basically a monopoly, should that monopoly come along with the responsibility, okay, if you're going to be the only company essentially that provides internet for this swath of territory, then we are going to demand that you make it available to everybody. Yeah, my my issue, again, and full disclosure, we've had our share of spectrum issues here over the last two months, uh, so much so that we've actually, a couple of these shows have gotten derailed in the process. Um, But You know, I think, and we're starting to see it more now, these community-based projects, empires pushing one right now in Geneva. Yeah. uh, Some other communities have similar types of of efforts going on. And those work really well in densely populated, small, confined spaces. But I, I think realistically what we need to see is more smaller companies invest more or be given the opportunity to invest more in the communities they already serve. So, you know, uh, OTTC is one that I always see a lot. You see the, those trucks around the region. They're expanding quite a bit. And that is a company in my mind that is, you know, locally based, regionally, you know, dedicated. And those are the companies that when you turn the clock back and you look back in 2015, I think the state probably would have been a little better suited working with a bunch of regional smaller players as opposed to working with one titanic company that was ultimately going to be looking out for shareholders less you know the guy who lives in in Gorham or the person who lives in Rushville or you know in I think of your small town um and that's kind of where this issue stops for me like until we start to partner with, as a state, start to partner with these smaller, you know, community-based groups, I don't really see a scenario where, you know, the Rushville is treated the same as Rochester. Well, and whether you're a big company or a small company, I mean, in the free market, I'm not going to extend service to two more houses three miles down a country road if it's going to cost me 25 times to put the service in what I'm going to make back. So the question then becomes what what subsidies should we offer and what, what are legitimate to offer to make it worth their while? Uh, like th- that's why I say maybe if, if you know, a company like Spectrum is going to... Because, I mean, essentially they've, they've been granted monopolies. They have in terms of cable, the, the cable yeah. TV. They have these monopolies. So if we're going to say to you, yes, we'll allow you to be the only person who can offer television... And, I mean, I understand there's other services, but basic everyday cable television, if we're going to give you that monopoly, then we're going to require you to expend that money to extend it to the people on the fringes. Well, and that's, and to, in my mind, I just think like there's so many creative ways that government, if it really put its mind to it, could make the cost doable, whether it's, you know, I mean, look at cell phone some service. Of the investment We've or... managed to put cell phone coverage almost every place on Earth. So yeah. I think we could do that with internet. Well, and right, like the other part of it too is, is you know, we've got a new tax credit every other day, practically. Right. And why can't you just create a tax credit for that homeowner who would otherwise have to invest twenty five thousand dollars to get service to their home? Right. Create a scenario where it can become become a twenty five thousand dollar tax write off for two or three or four years because they're. You know, that service is there forever. It's not like they're just doing it for their benefit. It's there for the whole community's benefit literally for the rest of time or as long as the infrastructure works. So, you know, it's those scenarios to me that are just mind-boggling that government can't just think slightly more right. creatively. And if we can't fix. extend the infrastructure, I mean, you know, we've all seen those Verizon calls it the jet pack, the wireless. I mean, the device doesn't cost hardly anything. And then it's just a question of the service. Any place where you can get cell coverage, you can get internet. So maybe we, 
you know, we, we hand those out and subsidize part of the cost. Like you said, I mean, you make a good point, which is we subsidize a lot of things in this country. So, so maybe we should take a look at what we're subsidizing and what we're not and, and provide more of it for these things that are becoming basic necessities. I mean, somebody might be looking at this going, you know, Internet, that's not really a necessity. But in this world, it really is. I, I think it is. And I just, I, I want to say one other thing, because we've touched on it a few times during this episode. I am, I'm, I turned 30 a couple of weeks ago, and my entire life I've listened to people typically older than me say, you can't keep spending, you can't keep spending, the bill is going to come due. And you said it earlier in the show. Um, I'd argue that the bill is never going to come due because our entire our entire world and our entire economy is apparently just propped up by imaginary things that nobody ever touches or actually sees or feels. So when we're talking about spending, when we're talking about spending for the greater good, try to create a real accounting for why that money should or shouldn't be spent. I'm not saying every investment is a good investment. But I am saying that there are certain things that we just should be spending on now so that we don't have to think about them five years from now, six years from now. We don't have to worry about the kids who don't have access to to high-speed broadband. Because guess what? If Governor Cuomo's $500 million spend in 2015 were actually effective, we wouldn't be having all these issues with remote learning in 2020 when a pandemic is here. It's not that complicated and of course, none of these issues are going anywhere. So we're going to keep having this conversation over and over again, apparently. Keeps us in business. Into infinity. <laughs> uh, Ted, where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. In Geneva, that's 95.9 and 1240 WGVA. In Auburn, it's 98.1 and 1590 WAUB. Thanks for watching or listening. The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com slash debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>